Hey, everybody, the booketing is coming right up. But once again, I, I just wanted to remind people before we went any farther, the It's Thought Christmas, y'all t-shirts, we are about to order them, which means if you want to get this year's t-shirt, you need to be a member of patreon.com forward slash the booketing at the $25 level starting sometime around now. And I wanted to remind people of that, not because we don't appreciate people giving whatever they're able to give, but because I think some people were disappointed that they didn't get the shirt last year. And I just wanted everybody to know what the scheduling was so that they could get in on the shirt deal if that's what they wanted and that's what they thought would be cool. We do obviously appreciate whatever you can do for us at patreon.com forward slash the booketing. We love our fans. We love the support that you guys provide, the reviews that you write, the people that you tell about the show, the social media shares, all that stuff is wonderful. Uh, One other thing, speaking of social media, you should check out Brandon and oftentimes now with me, we are reading poetry on Instagram, Instagram IGTV or whatever. We are reading a poem a day, Monday through Saturday now actually and we're having a lot of fun with that we're, we're smoking cigars provided by little anthony's cigar store which is really cool so you can uh, check out that as well meanwhile patreon.com forward slash the booketing sign up for any amount if you want to get in on this year's t-shirt which has the wonderful booketing slogan of it's thought christmas y'all reminding us that it is thought christmas when you come to the bookening, that there is a bounty of thoughts. And sometimes these thoughts can be colorful. They can even be contradictory. But you got to have a lot of thoughts about a subject. You got to come to every subject and say to yourself, it's thought Christmas. And that's what this shirt reminds you of. It's a whole thing. You can listen to the Was Tolkien a Racist episode, I guess, to learn the history of it's thought Christmas, y'all. Point is, if you want that awesome shirt, which I really like how the shirt turned out, I think it'll look really good on men, really good on women, really good on, I guess we probably we don't have that many children that are going to support us at $25 a month. But hey, I don't think there's anything stopping you. Maybe Patreon's regulations stop you. I don't know. I don't know. But go to patreon.com forward slash the booketing. If you want to get in on the t-shirt deal for this year, now's the time to do it. Thank you. We love you. Here comes the show. Coming up next, the booking reads Henry VI, Part 1, Henry VI, Part 2, Henry VI, Part 3, and Richard III, Part Nothing. everybody welcome to the booking my name is nathan i am of course your humble and obedient host and brandon well yeah. he's an elvish marked abortive rooting hog what <laughs> jake is the slave of nature and the son of hell huh you pulled up shakespeare insults or something the slander of thy heavy mother's womb the loathed loathed issue of thy father's loins i wish huh. we could become better strangers the rag thou rag of honor i think that's from much ado about nothing i wish we could become better strangers that is pretty good that's pretty <laughs> that's pretty witty still works today old shakespeare he was a pretty witty guy he was arguably pretty witty arguably hey brendan's not really an elvish marked abortive rooting rooting hog no 
he's a great hog and he's my friend. <laughs> Thank you, Nathan. <laughs> I know, he's not a hog. I love Brandon and he's a scholar who's a baller of reading. Hey. He's Ghost Brandon. Ooh. And I think that's it. We've also got DJ Funky Town himself. Bow, bow. No, 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 no! It's not DJ Funky Town. It's Beastmaster Funky Town himself, <laughs> Jacob Benzel, the pastor, who's a master of reading. We've become a morning DJ show. <laughs> <laughs> We've always been a morning DJ <laughs> show, Brandon. Who are we I'm kidding? just providing the noises now. <laughs> <laughs> hey guys, let's talk about William Shakespeare's Henry the Sixth, parts one, two, and three, and Richard the Third. What baggage did you bring to Henry the Sixth, Part One, Part Two, and Part Three, and Richard the Third? Actually, watching these episodes or watching the Hollow Crown, yes, which we did, by the way. I think I realized that Henry the Sixth, Part One, Two, and Three were one of my blind spots with Shakespeare. I don't mm. know if I've ever read these. You never read them? Yeah, I think I've always thought that I've read them and just never did. Huh? So there you go. I read Richard the Third. Yep. He hasn't. Yep. I hadn't. I hadn't okay. read any of these. I just had never completed the Henriad. Yeah. The... Arguably, I think that of all the Shakespeare to make it through your life, never having read, <laughs> these might be there, right <laughs> up there. Wouldn't hurt too much not to read these. Yeah. Is this going to be the episode where we hate on Shakespeare? You know, Nathan tries to make every Shakespeare I try to make episode, every Shakespeare episode uh, that. Yeah. But I don't know. Well, I guess Maybe we already kind of hated on Much Ado About Nothing. We can, no, we, no, 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 no. Midsummer Night's Dream. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. We've never done much ado about nothing. Next year, we're doing Hamlet, which I know I like. <laughs> Hamlet's so, a great one. Yeah, I like Hamlet. <laughs> and I liked Lear, but I'm not sure you guys loved Lear. I, I don't know. Shakespeare is always hard to talk about, and I always- and He's not that good. <laughs> yeah, he's not that good, you know? If he would up his game a little bit, he'd be a lot easier to talk Overrated. about. Overrated. Yeah. You know what? If he had been Oxford educated, maybe he could have written better plays. Mm-hmm. If he'd been the Earl of Oxford, which he yeah. was, then- yeah. Maybe he would have been better. Wasn't just some humble craftsman trying to sling those words, trade, yeah. apply that trade. <laughs> Jake, your thoughts? Um, Shakespeare was a populist. Yay. Woo. Yep. We should I, talk about that. Jake sent out something fun to us. I had a fun, found a fun fact thing. Yep. Are you going to share it with us? I was on vacation with some friends and somebody played this video of you know, how Shakespeare knew all these vocabulary words and was way smarter than all of us or whatever. And I had a sneaking suspicion that it was overblown. And so I decided, because it just doesn't make sense. Yeah. If you think about it, the English language has ballooned since the time of Shakespeare. There's no way that Shakespeare actually had that much larger vocabulary than all of us. By the way, I hope you smacked the glasses off of this Poindexter's face that was showing you a Shakespeare video (laughs) (laughs) on your vacation. (laughs) So I was like, okay, those are fun jokes or whatever, but it all- I just want to interrupt you to say, I don't really think that people should smack the glasses off of Poindexter's. (laughs) (laughs) I do. (laughs) I mean, obviously- Nathan. (laughs) Slap. If the booking stands for anything, we stand against nerds. That's right. We hate those guys. So- We lift weights while we do this podcast. Oh, always. (laughs) (laughs) Come on, Nathan, put another 25 on each end of this barbell. (laughs) Yeah, Brandon, if you could bench me, what, uh, spot me- yeah, I'll spot you, man. All right. All right. Now let's listen to Jake. All right, Jake. So people like to say that Shakespeare had this massive vocabulary, and then they use these statistics. So I, I just, I, w- I was suspicious of it all, okay? So I, I did a little snooping on the internet to see where, and there are people that say, you know, Shakespeare had, you know, 35, 45,000 whatever words in his vocabulary. But then there's like this actual academic out there who's like, actually, that count 
includes every derivation, derivation, every form of conjugation. And because he was Elizabethan, every verb gets conjugated, you know, five to seven times instead of two or three times. And so if you just think about what's an example, so ask, ask, we say, I ask, he or she asks, they asked, they ask, they asked, you know, that's it. It's mm-hmm. like four, four versions, but Shakespeare has ask, asks, asks, asketh, asked, asking. This is every, every verb has multiple, you know, conjugations to it. So it just balloons and every single one of those in those large counts counts as a word. So this guy basically breaks it down, says Shakespeare had a much smaller vocabulary than the average person today, actually, if you break it down in an honest way. And then if you compare Shakespeare to his peers, Shakespeare had a far smaller vocabulary than most of his peers. And so, you know, Marlowe or Johnson or any number of other people had um, used a much larger vocabulary per 10,000 words or per, you know, whatever like that. In any given sample, Shakespeare had one of the smallest vocabularies. This article mentions John Marston as being a playwright of the time who was, if you want to read somebody that was actually just into coining odd terms and avoiding any kind of cliche and just coming up with, with new stuff. He'd be your guy. Yeah, he blows Shakespeare out of the water as far as that stuff nobody goes. Nobody reads John Marston. Cause... Well, yeah. Now, Shakespeare, over the whole of his works, has a really broad vocabulary, but that's because he's prolific. It's not because in any you know, sample size that you pick, he's using a huge variety of words. He's just not. And so what this article actually does is it goes out, out of its way to actually parse the data and say, actually part of Shakespeare's success probably had to do with the fact that he was uh, so limited in his vocabulary. He wasn't actually out there showing off his education and his erudition. He was a man of the people. Shakespeare, the genius, you know, who knew all these words is, a, is just a myth that needs to be busted and blown up. And we wouldn't have all of these people uh, making these wild claims about authorship if we would just be honest with the data in front of us. So much work went into creating the myth of Shakespeare the genius that people use that and surf off of that, and none of it's actually honest. Yeah, what, what this article is actually doing is attacking the Shakespeare truthers and, and saying, you know, everybody says, in order for him to have been that level of genius, he must have been, had to have been X. Right. But actually, let's start with the fact that he wasn't even that level of genius. We've blown yeah. we've blown all that out of proportion. Because yeah. one of the one of the pieces of evidence I loved in this was that after making that claim, it then says, Okay, now that we know that he doesn't have as broad a vocabulary even as these others, let's look at what these others actually were, who they came from. Yeah. And you have like they're all come from fathers who were craftsmen, like wagon makers and barrel makers and things mm-hmm. like that. It's like so yeah, Shakespeare very well could have just been a boy from Stratford upon Avon. Yep who loved theater. Right. If he actually was the Earl of Oxford, that would mean that he wasn't anything like the other 10 playwrights that yeah. he was competing with yeah. who had bigger vocabularies than he did. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, there we go. That yeah. takes care of that. So Shakespeare was an idiot. Shakespeare, not a genius. <laughs> limited vocabulary. <laughs> Stupid, really. Stupid, really. <laughs> so all that. <laughs> oh, man. How did we even get on that? 
I guess we were just starting to go down the path of our Shakespeare baggage, and I was starting to say it's always difficult to talk about Shakespeare. He's the he's the most difficult person to talk about every year on the bookening because you have to reckon with his genius, you have to reckon with where he's not his a legacy. genius, his legacy, and you have to reckon with Oh, I don't know. I just always feel like when someone's up on the top of the mountain, you have to throw as many rocks at them as possible just to see what happens. That's I feel like that's kind of our job. So, well, also you can't be. A, one of the things that we've said over and over again on the book and things, you can't be afraid to throw the rocks either because Shakespeare wasn't some god that descended to earth mm-hmm. to give us plays. He was a human and he was liable to mistakes, just like we are. And he has some failures. <laughs> I, I think Oh, go ahead. Sorry. Yeah, and that's and it'll, that doesn't mean that you should just take a negative approach to every single author, but you should not be afraid to exercise some discernment when you're reading. What what I like to do is throw rocks, and they always bounce off. You know, and maybe I seem like a jerk for throwing rocks, but I always assume they're going to bounce off with somebody like Shakespeare. The only time I really feel like maybe a rock has hit Shakespeare, but it also bounced off and hit us because our wives also they were the dumbest episodes that had ever been done. Where our uh, midsummer. Night's Dream. Night's yeah. Dreams, where I think we just kind of decided, we don't actually really like this play all mm-hmm. that much. Yeah. Yep. And you can have it, G.K. Chesterton, since you think it's great. You're, you weirdo. Yeah, you fat weirdo. weirdo. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Throw those rocks, Nathan. <laughs> <laughs> the kind of Throw them, Nathan. Throw them. <laughs> Take that, Poindexter. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sure Chesterton would have had no witty comeback that would have just... Mm, yeah, Chesterton could never put me in his place. <laughs> yeah. Well, now he's dead. So That's right. Take that. Um, who's laughing now? Yeah, who's laughing now, Gilbert? <sighs> okay. I, I think one thing that I've learned, so this is the, maybe the last thing I'll say about baggage. One thing that has always caught, tripped me up is that I mostly approach Shakespeare through cinema. I mean, just because, you know, I don't have a lot of time to, or inclination to go to a, a night on the theater or whatever. And cinema tends to literalize these plays in ways that actually haven't always been helpful to me and to my understanding of Shakespeare. So I think, back, like, for example, back with when we were reviewing Macbeth. I was looking for a level of psychological realism and of psychological, you know, a psychological through line for Macbeth that I just don't think Shakespeare cared that much about. I mm-hmm. think Shakespeare was just about getting to that next good, awesome guitar solo of a monologue and whether Macbeth is actually tracking as how did this seemingly noble dude suddenly become a thug in act four. I just don't think Shakespeare cared that much. And I don't think you have to care that much. It's not that Shakespeare wasn't a genius psychologist maybe the the greatest psychologist that's ever put pen to paper in service of literature but there's just ways in which he's not trying to offer a complete portrait of some of these characters in the ways that i as a 21st century observer expect him to be this isn't the same thing as if it tracks it it tracks in a way that requires you to make jumps and accept that it happened exactly not that he's showing you the process of how it happened. And there's always stuff. In Richard III, his wife, he indicates that he wants his wife to be murdered, and then in the next scene, she is. And we don't get a big hullabaloo. You could be forgiven for missing it. He just he just says it somewhere. And a lot of times in things like Hollow Crown, they'll clean that up by offering us a little violent set piece to say, yeah, that's what happened. But he'll assume a lot of things you know, that I assume maybe his listeners were just familiar with in terms of the history. Like, I don't have to show that battle. I don't have to show that turn of events because everybody knows it happened and who cares. <laughs> and so there's just a lot of things like that that 
always trip me up about Shakespeare. And it's not that I don't think he's a genius, but. That just wasn't what he was doing. This is not what he was doing. And I yeah. sort of, I think early on in the booking days expected him to do that, especially because you and you watch, like we watched the Michael Fassbender Macbeth and they try to play it real straight and real low to the ground and real, you know, like you're just watching a piece of modern cinematic character work. And it's like, well, it doesn't really quite track that way. But who, also Shakespeare didn't care about that. He wasn't writing a screenplay. Well, the one that's awesome is, what's his face? Patrick Stewart eating pickles. He, he just uh, ate some pickles in his version of Macbeth. It was pretty awesome. Yeah. <laughs> so that being said, what do you guys think about those Henry plays? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, we got to talk about what the Hollow Crown did with them. Maybe that's the place to start. What did you actually think about the Hollow Crown version of the Henry plays? I thought season two was lazy compared to season one. Well, maybe couple- you know, maybe you want to argue that he wasn't that they weren't working with as good a material as season one, and there's a case to be made for that. But also, I felt like they just took a lot of shortcuts. It's like, well, let's just make it really violent and Game of Thrones Thronify this as much yeah, as we can, yeah. and then we signed Benedict Cumberbatch, so let's just lean into yeah. Benedict Cumberbatch plays Psycho. And, yeah. play, and then let him carry everything and not really put much elbow grease in anything else. It's definitely what happens at the end of the Henry VI play. Yeah, and then all of Richard III is that way. I didn't even finish the Richard III. I was just so bored with long, close-up monologues from Benedict Cumberbatch. Like I like Benedict Cumberbatch just, just fine. Benedict Cumberbatch's face and let him stare into the camera and pretend to be psychic or be psychotic yeah, yeah. It, well, they thought that that could carry it yeah that yeah it was just like well yeah we put our money and we hired this guy and let's just let him carry it for us that's what we planned that's what we paid for yeah it just yeah it certainly didn't work for me i i always think cast against type that's one of the things that i always like is well two really good examples from hollow crown season one Ben Wishaw as Richard II is not the Richard II that I think any of us expected, and it's yeah. it's all the better for it. Yeah, yeah, it's the highlight of the whole series. And uh, same thing, really, with I mean, uh, what's his face, Loki? What's his name, Hiddleston. Hiddleston? He's a good Henry V. I don't think he's against type exactly, but he's not the. I think what a lot of people in my generation think of Henry V as Kenneth Branagh shouting to the rafters, doing his best Braveheart impression. Yeah. Or maybe Braveheart was doing his best impression of that. I don't remember which one came first, but I think Branagh likes to really go for the rafters in his Shakespeare performances, which is funny because Branagh is actually, I think, kind of lame when he goes for the rafters. He's actually pretty good when he's being quiet. But be that as it may, Branagh really likes to play to those play to the cheap seats and that's what i'm used to with henry v and so hiddleston's saint crispin day speech was revelatory i will use a book reviewer's word for this folks revel like because he just does it like a guy who's surrounded by six or seven guys that he needs to inspire and he feels like he's just making it up like it's coming to him and he's starting to get excited and by the end of it it's really inspirational but it's not a dude that went out and delivered the Gettysburg Address or something. Yeah. Uh, it has much more of that feeling of he just really believes it and it's coming to him and he's he's gathering steam as he goes, which is great. Yeah, his back's up against the wall and he's got to figure out how to motivate himself and the people around him to do the right thing. And it's just he's working himself into it. 
It's awesome. You compare that then to Cumberbatch. It's not really Cumberbatch's fault, or at least I'm not prepared to say immediately that it is. Maybe it is. But the thing that everybody knows him for is playing a sociopath who is called Sherlock Holmes. And that series really leans into the sociopathy of it all. Yep. And it's just like, we know exactly what he's going to do in all of these scenes and what they're going to look like and how they're going to feel and when he's going to go big and when he's going to go small. If if this had been our introduction to Benedict Cumberbatch, maybe it would feel different. It might be like revelatory, hashtag. It might be like, wow, who is this guy? But yeah. the fact is, it's just for nobody. I mean, nobody hasn't seen. Well, yeah. And then you end up feeling like, well, okay, Benedict Cumberbatch is a one-trick pony, I guess. Like, Yeah, that is kind of what you get, the feeling. Let's they, see some range, man. Yeah. Let's see you bring something besides the same exact performance to... Well, and because we're so familiar with the fact that Benedict Cumberbatch is a sociopath, it takes all of the teeth out of the I can smile and play the villain stuff because you never really buy his smiles. What you need for Richard is someone that can plausibly convince a woman over her husband's dead body that she wants to marry him. It needs to be a pretty charming, likable likably wounded even kind of a beautifully broken i mean i think that's my uh, so if you watch i would recommend people it might i think it's rated r it might have some violence or sex or something but the uh what's his face gandalf um ian mckellen McKellen did a version of richard the second or richard the third and what's great about ian mckellen is that ian mckellen is just a very likable guy i think ian mckellen is just kind of smooth and loose and charismatic and so when the woman is spitting in his face, I think they have the woman's, I think it's Annette Benning in that version. She spits in his face and he has this kind of wounded puppy dog look. And he's like, well, I was just coming to woo you. I mean, I killed your husband because I, because you're so pretty and now you're spitting in my, and you kind of feel bad for him. And, that, <laughs> and that's, that's what you really want for Richard III. You don't yeah, want someone yeah. that can lean into the. You know, like Tom Hanks. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well. Ian McKellen is kind of the Tom Hanks of Britain, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Tom Hanks is actually, I mean, that's that's wildly uh, like. That's out of left field. Maybe, maybe that breaks the breaks the rubber band or something. But, <laughs> but yeah, that's kind of who you want. I mean, you want somebody that can be sad and wounded and that can pl- plausibly play all the parts where he's smiling and that the Clarence, his brother would just love and yeah. adore and never expect have a horrible dream that he's going to murder him and never put two and two together. Yeah. You want that guy. Yeah. You kind of get the feeling that as wonderful as the casting was in the first season, they just kind of missed the ball with this one. Well, Henry the sixth himself is a dud. He's yeah. pretty lame. Yes. I don't know what you do with that character. Well, they were just trying to do another Ben Wishaw. Yeah, but that guy yeah. doesn't have any it's of just the a nuance. Job. Yeah. But he couldn't really carry it. And they proved in the first season, too, that you didn't necessarily have to do a celebrity as that character, right? So yeah. with Henry IV, the young Henry IV. Yeah, Bolingbroke yeah. was awesome. He was so good that when they replaced him with- With freaking Jeremy Irons. It was kind of it disappointing. It felt like a letdown. Oh, it was like, so. how do you move to Jeremy Irons and feel like a letdown? Well, you know, yeah. he just did a great job. Yeah. And so I think that- they showed that they just didn't really have a vision for what they should have been. Mm-hmm. And all they wanted was they got Benedict Cumberbatch to sign on, probably because Benedict Cumberbatch was excited to be a part of it. You had all these. Well, yeah, the first great, season was so great. Yeah. Like, yeah, had all these celebrities. It was a who's who of British acting. And then here he was going to be Richard the Third. And yeah, 
That would have been super exciting. I get the sense that maybe he would have been more interesting as Henry the Sixth. I was just about to say, yeah, yeah, that's what I cast was him against too. type. Let him play the wimpy. Yeah, and let yeah. Hiddleston play Richard the Third. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I yeah. mean, honestly, yeah, Hiddleston plays a great wounded puppet. That's why he's so good as Loki, right? Like, I mean, if you're if they really wanted to stick with fans, yeah, Hiddleston's a great idea. Well, like Cumberbatch, yeah, Martin Freeman could have played a weird Richard the Third. Cumberbatch, I think, or uh, Cumberbatch. Martin Freeman, Martin Freeman would have been would a really been, fun Richard III. And he would have at least looked like more like those other oh, actors man, who played yeah. his brothers. Well, the thing about Richard, the thing about Martin Freeman is Martin Freeman plays passive aggression about as well as anybody. Well, that first <laughs> yeah. Martin season agree, of Fargo. Mar- yeah. Martin Freeman, oh, yeah, the first season of Fargo, even as Bilbo Baggins, Martin Freeman is never really likable, but he always plays guys that sort of have to be likable, put upon every man that are secretly kind of angry at the world. It's what was so great about Walter White and. Breaking Bad is that right. Walter White always kind of feels like an angry megalo- <laughs> megalomaniac, even when he's just a downtrodden husband. Martin Freeman could actually do that aspect of it really well. Yeah. Almost anyone but Patrick Cumberbatch would have been good. Well, there you have it. <laughs> there's our thoughts on <laughs> Which, um, I mean, that's what's fascinating about Shakespeare is that we've talked about before how you can read Shakespeare... And that's part of the reason that he's become this character that then we have to have these academics come out and write these pieces to prove to us that he's not really some, he's not really an author that's just meant to be read inside your office with a pipe or something Mm. in the evening, right? Or some, like you approach classical music going to the symphony, wearing a, a suit and tie, right? That's not Shakespeare. That's not who Shakespeare is. He's meant to be watched. He's meant to be performed and enjoyed with others. And that's what was great about the first season of Hollow Crown is it kind of captured that because I, I agree there are issues with trying to make it cinematic. And then so, but with season two, they ran into this problem. Well, what happens when you've committed to that cinematic form and then you have to portray a war? Well, you get some of the bloodiest stuff I've seen in a long time. Mm-hmm. Like that second episode of Henry the Sixth. I was watching it with my boys and I ended up like, I was like, oh yeah, you guys can't watch this. <laughs> yep. Yeah. <laughs> and their heads getting cut off. Their 13 year old boys getting their throats cut. There's yep. just yep. all sorts of awful stuff happening. Which that, is in Shakespeare. I mean, that's. It's know. in Shakespeare, but like you were saying, that's, it's on, it's theater. So it would have been much more. You suddenly literalize it. It does something that Shakespeare may not have ever in, really intended. There's no performance of Henry the Sixth that you're going to see on stage that was nearly as violent as that. No. Now, all that to say, this is, it's interesting because this is Shakespeare's, as far as we know, his earliest stuff. Mm-hmm. And so you, and he wrote it with other guys like Thomas Nash, Christopher Marlowe was probably involved. So there's a sensationalism to it that you get the sense that here's a young playwright just trying to make a name for himself. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, let's throw some blood. Let's throw some gore in there. Yeah. It's very, it's really, piece let's, Titus Andronicus, yeah, which is one of the earlier ones too. Yeah. So it's very bloody. Yeah. And so let's just get, let's just get people to be interested in what I'm doing. And so one of the ways you do it is, you know, you throw some sex and violence in there. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's interesting seeing things don't change that much. No. And, uh, once he gets his feet under him, you realize that's not really what Shakespeare's interested in, but these earlier works of his, they show some of those signs of immaturity that you see in other artists when they're doing the same thing. Quentin Tarantino just has never grown out of it. Yeah. 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 But it is immaturity. Yeah. Well, Raymond Chandler famously said, when in doubt, have a guy with a gun come through the door. Shakespeare's following that logic here. Yeah, when in doubt, let Richard III see his younger brother brutally murdered by mm-hmm. 
Cinnamon bun. What was his name? Cinnamon bun? No, it began with a C. Clifford. Clifford, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Those are close. Yeah. <laughs> Good old cinnamon bun. One of Shakespeare's greatest creations. <laughs> so I got to say, as far as uh, brutal revenge, it felt pretty good to see Cinnamon Bun die the way he died. <laughs> How did Cinnamon D- Bun die again? He gets stabbed, but Richard III refuses to finish him off. He just kind of lets him slowly die. Oh, right. Yeah. Yeah. It was good stuff. Good stuff. Oh, great. It's horrifying, though, <laughs> when they then kind of like put him up on his feet and use him as a little puppet and stuff. It's yeah. There's some awful things it's that brutal. go on to show you. I mean, it's successful in showing you if, if the whole intention with this play, in which part of it was to glorify what would become the Tudor house. Mm-hmm. And so you need the Tudors to come in to establish rule and order over this anarchy of the Lancaster-York division so that he can say, look, Elizabeth, Queen Elizabeth, you're the crowning achievement because you put an end to this mayhem. If that was his whole goal, then I mean, he was pretty successful because boy, howdy, are these Richard the Six plays or any of the Six plays are pretty, they are just full of mayhem and violence and gore and lack of order and everybody's stabbing each other in the back. As soon as one king thinks that he has authority, you realize that his authority is being overturned because he himself wasn't willing to really set the state above himself. So he married a British woman because she comes in and she looks hot. And so he refuses to make a treaty with France, which makes that one guy feel betrayed. And so he comes over. Yeah. Which is Warwick was the a great King character. Yeah. He was he was about as that good. guy had a cool voice. Yeah. yeah, he was awesome, but the closest his head to a Thanos or something. Like <laughs> yeah, that. exactly. Right, <laughs> just crush your head with his iron gauntlet. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean he gets that he gets that sense of cross that well in the plays. What's the line it starts out with? I think Jake quoted it in our first episode that the world is based on hierarchy. Yeah, when you right, when you, it's actually from. Like a different play. They just like, chose to start it with that. <clears throat> it's from one of the Henrys, right? It's just no. I think it's from something like Tristan and Isolde oh, or something really? weird. weird. Like that. Yeah, it's from a. I did not catch that. It's from I because I looked it up. I, I, I just, I'll, I'll find the thing and then you can you look up the words. I just trusted that they would not do that. <laughs> <laughs> you trusted them. He, here's the quote as they, they have it, the back. and it's part yeah, of it. It's from a. It's not from, I forget which one it's from. It's not from the one I said. It's not from what I said. The heavens themselves, the planets, and this earth observe degree, priority, and place, office, and custom, and all line of order. Take but degree away, and tune that string, and hark what discord follows. It's yeah. from... Uh, Troilus and Crescendus. Cressida, how do you say that? Okay. Some random... Yep. His, his poem, right? Or is that? It's a play. It's his no, play. It's a play. Yeah. It's, it's, I'm thinking interesting. Yeah. 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 Not a play that I've ever read. Yeah. One of speaking. his more obscure ones. Yeah. So. Yeah. It's from a, and it's pieced together actually from a long soliloquy. Well, one, pe- one thing people should realize if they watch The Hollow Crown is that it's cut by probably 60%. Yeah. Sort of Every any, one of those speeches is like the three memorable lines and then yeah. like. It's a very anything goes kind of. Yeah. If you try adaptation. and read along with it, you'll. So when we were watching it, I actually was really hopeful because of that opening. Mm-hmm. I was like, okay. The opening was cool. This is going to be good. This yeah. is going to be, and it is it's like going to be Judy a parable. Reads it or something like yeah, that. it's going to be yeah. a parable on what happens when hierarchy is not observed. It's going to be like, wow, nowadays that we're going to, with all the things that are happening socially, that we're going to have a story that's telling us this sort of thing. And had they pulled it off, it would have been great. Um, yeah, they just weren't interested in that. Yeah. 
you could tell, I think one of the things that happened with them is that they thought if they made this as games of thrones as possible, that mm-hmm. they would get more watchers. That more probably viewers. worked. Yeah, that if they made this violent and just that people would love it more. And it probably did work, but they also missed out then on the main gist of this is that you have these cousins that are fighting and when they refuse to observe the order that is there and when all of society has turned towards revenge and betrayal, it's not going to work. We have all kinds of hierarchical violations on all sides. You have Henry VI refusing to just man up and be a, yep. actually act like a king. You have Margaret unsexing herself, as Shakespeare would say, yep. becoming this warrior queen in his place, which I don't remember where they, they actually keep the speech, but York gives a big speech right before she <laughs> wipes his tears with the, the handkerchief that also has the blood of his yeah. brother or whatever it is. He gives a speech about why aren't you acting like a lady, basically, yeah. which doesn't go over too well. Yeah, but, Queen Margaret's an interesting character for modern people to try and portray. Well, it was also an interesting character for Shakespeare. To, I wanted to ask you, Brandon, and, and both you guys about this. Shakespeare has a really interesting relationship with women in power for a guy that had to please maybe the ultimate historical woman, woman in, in power. power. Shakespeare almost always portrays women in power as being, shall we say, volatile at best. Yeah, I mean, the two big examples would be Lady Macbeth and this lady. Yeah, and this lady's so, a monster. And Lady Macbeth is a monster. Lady Macbeth obviously is a monster. Yep. There's never a case in Shakespeare that I can think of where it's a good thing when a no. woman assumes that kind of power. And often they will give explicitly draw attention to that, both Lady Macbeth and this queen. Somebody or other, you know, Lady Macbeth says, God's unsex me. Well, yeah, it's, it, it's invariably demonic. Yeah. Actually, Lady Macbeth literally calls on the powers of hell. Um, well, and so does Gloucester's wife. Uh, the she's got these demons that she's calling on. That she ends up getting in big trouble because she's ambitious beyond right. her station. Yeah, exactly. And then Lady Margaret basically becomes a witch by the time it's all over. Yeah, I mean, she's right? like literally some kind of. She's a channel for the demonic. Yeah. Like, and Joan of Arc is portrayed. <laughs> my favorite. My favorite thing about all these plays is the completely negative, <laughs> racist <laughs> depiction of. Joan of Arc, she's not a saint. She's just a witch. She's just a witch. And she's yeah. in league with the devil and she's pretending to be in league with God. And when they've got her on the ropes, she's going to claim to be pregnant and she's just a conniving, you know what? There's nothing, redem- or, There's nothing redemptive yeah. about her at all. They tried a little bit, I think, in this to make her in a the adaptation. Redemptive. Yeah. Well, in both, yeah, with both Margaret and her, I think they try to say, like, yeah. isn't this cool, kind of cool in a Game of Thrones kind of a way? You know, yeah. isn't this kind of a Cersei Lannister? But then they kind of, they kind of stab themselves in the back there because that guy that Margaret falls in love with certainly is not a shining example of chivalry. Like <laughs> if that's the guy, yeah, like, that, yeah. that's the guy yeah. she's going to fall for. So, well, they're just going to have a tense moment, sexual moment in the stairway. Yeah. And, you know, yeah, okay, look, we'll be lovers and you'll also be Queen of England until Yeah. That guy was my favorite conniving Richard the Third type in, in the in this these three movies. He was a fun kind of yeah. I'm gonna smile and also just selfishly try and I'm gonna have the queen who brings nothing to the king marry the king just so because I have the hots for her. Like yeah. he, that guy was a fun villain yeah. of that type yeah. but yeah he was successful gloucester was pretty successful 
Yeah, he was the uh, downtown Abbey guy, yeah. right? Yeah. Yeah. So that was good casting, the Paddington Bear guy. Yeah, the Paddington Bear guy. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Margaret was a good casting. Margaret was great. Shows. She was We're good... talking just in terms of casting or even Andrew Scott as uh, yeah. the King of France. The King was, of France. That, that was, was good fun. fun. Yeah. Outside of your mains, the supporting cast was generally really great. You bring back uh, Warwick. like It was really yeah. just the title characters, right? Yeah. Henry VI and Richard III. Swap them out. And you're just yeah. Fine. Give us a good Henry and a good Richard, mm-hmm. and and they could have done it because they proved that in season one. And then yeah. lean on the characters instead of your gore. Yeah, yeah, but, yep. Well, I guess we should close the loop. Do you think that what would have Queen Elizabeth have thought of all these? I guess we can only really speculate, right? But why don't why don't I mean, we have a more shining female? It's a good question, and you've you've well, the contrasts. I mean, yeah. you know, Shakespeare can have plausible deniability, at least. You're, we're showing the corruption of both sexes mm-hmm. in either of these houses, right? You have weak, facile men, and you have uh, dastardly, conniving women. A little bit of heroism in a, in a, in a Henry here, and, mm-hmm. you know, but at the end of the day, you have either weak, facile men or... Uh, conniving psychopaths on the male side and on the female side you have these demonic witches mm-hmm. and they're all contrasts with you my lady right you know? well and the thing about her is she was the virgin queen she was someone who had to in a very i assume quite savvy way figure out how to present herself as some kind of woman figure yeah that's also the monarch yeah which is not what these characters do these characters are always just like i should be able to be as bloodthirsty and yeah, awful as one of these as male characters. Yeah, and it's always there's always unsexing. I think they use that word in for both Lady Macbeth and Mar- Lady Margaret or whatever her name is, Queen Margaret. I guess it is. Yes, yeah, so I'm just seeing if there's anybody. I mean, this has to be something that somebody has written on. I'm sure many a thesis paper. I I, I cannot imagine. Yeah, I mean, this person saying that he's presenting women who take their allegedly weak stations and exploit them for gain. These women recreate themselves and the men around them, often paying reciprocal price for what they have won. Yeah, that so just sounds like a dumb modern. It's like so. In that case, the sense that Shakespeare, like Jake was saying, he had plausible deniability because Elizabeth was born into that station, mm-hmm. and this plays are all about trying to take something that you weren't born into. Right? That was the problem with the Yorks reaching for a throne that wasn't theirs. But then also their legitimate claim was that well, the Lancasters had done that in the first place. They right. had reached for a throne that wasn't there by taking it from Richard II. Right. So. And how that tension is finally resolved with the Tudor house and Queen Elizabeth having that authority given to her. She's not reaching for it. Instead, that's hers by right. That would be how Shakespeare would have plausible deniability. But you can't imagine that he's not writing these women characters and not thinking about Elizabeth somewhat. (laughs) I can't imagine there weren't people that saw these plays and got some kind of a kick out of like, well, yeah, that's what happens when... Women are in, in charge. Role. Yeah, I mean, there's just so much of that, and it's so explicit in the text. You know, it's not really subtext. It's like characters in the plays are saying things like, "Well, that's what happens when women are in charge." I don't know. It's interesting to speculate about, at the very least. Apparently, there's an article about how Macbeth is basically Lady Macbeth is supposed to be a parallel to Queen Elizabeth. That's flattering. Yeah. Anyways, yeah, this is interesting stuff, Nathan. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I thought it was worth asking the question. Yeah. Bold move there, Bill. Yeah, bold move, yeah. Bill. <laughs> and there are things like if we, I can't remember the exact examples, but even the sonnets, like there are 
little things he'll do occasionally that seem like mild critiques of Queen Elizabeth. Yeah. So, yeah. He was enough in her good graces probably that she would have- He could get away with it. Yeah, he could get away with it. He was enough in the public's good graces maybe that he could get away with it too. So she would have seen it and been like, okay, yeah. But he's not coming out right out and attacking her. Well, it's like a good good court jester can say anything as long as they're funny. The second they're not funny, they're dead. And (laughs) that's- Something that entertainers have had to live with for yeah, and so a year. I mean, we don't have Shakespeare right here to ask him. He may be like, "Well, you know, I'm just that really wasn't what I was thinking of." Or he may wink at you and say, "Yeah, isn't that fun?" <laughs> <laughs> we'll have to ask got him. away with it too, yeah. didn't I? When we kick the pigskin <laughs> with him one day, yeah, we'll we'll get to ask him. It's a callback to Bookening episode one, if I'm not mistaken. But if uh, a quick Google less. search is uh, correct, Nathan, then yes, lots of scholars have written lots of thoughts about these things. Well, there you go. Go read the scholars, folks. Yeah. Mm, or don't. Or don't. Yeah, probably, yeah. probably not. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the real answer is, we don't know. We, Shakespeare didn't tell us what he was doing, and we can we can only speculate. Yeah. Well, I guess we've talked about the Hollow Crown adaptations. What, what do you guys think about these plays as plays? I mean, would you agree that this is some of Shakespeare's weakest stuff? Let me ask about the Henrys. Specifically, we'll get to Richard the Third in a second, maybe. Henry the Sixth, you mean? The Henry the Sixth, yes. I mean, compared to the Henry the Fourth and Henry the Fifth, yeah. Yeah, there's no. These are these are lower tier Shakespeare. And like you said, with Shakespeare, really, what he's about is having these characters get to a point where they can give their guitar solo of a monologue, mm-hmm. and you don't have those moments in these plays. You do have them in. Richard II has those sorts of moments with Richard. Richard III certainly has them. Yeah, Rich and the Henry IV, V, Henry V has it all over the place. Well, Henry VI so. has a couple moments. It's got the famous scene where they all grab the flowers and decide to go to one side or the other. And yeah. most scholars think Shakespeare, I think, they made say it up. he had to write that. Well, yeah, he made it up, but that's that's the one thing everybody seems to think he definitely wrote, even if he was collaborating, because that scene's just a good scene, and that is a good scene in, mm-hmm. in Hollow Crown. Yeah, yep. probably the best scene. So a little lower tier. I would put it a lower tier Shakespeare, and I think that well, it makes you perfect. got so many things that are upper tier Shakespeare. You know, we're doing Hamlet next year for goodness' sake. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and that'll have all your blood and vengeance and everything that you could ask for in terms of audience pleasing moments. It's, I mean, it's like saying Old Curiosity Shop is lower tier Dickens. Yeah. It's, it's, it goes without saying all Dickens is lowercase, <laughs> lowercase, lowercase, <laughs> L- lower tier Victorian literature. Right. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> lower tier 19th century literature. Yeah. Right at the bottom. But these were really popular, right, Brandon? People, yeah. people of the time might have said this was some of Shakespeare's coolest stuff just because. Yeah, and that's what I was. So I guess I was kind of giving my opinion of this already, but I think that this is early Shakespeare. I think there's evidence of it all over the place. I think that. He was being violent and over the top because he was a young poet or a young playwright trying to make his way in English theater. And I think you see that. And I think it's fun to see. And I think that they're also pretty well, forgettable because of it. It's mm-hmm. such a classic move, right? Yeah. You splash out with sex and violence and then you you get enough people excited about your sex and violence that you can become more artistically nuanced. Yeah. Well, what you've got is why a lot of do that sort of thing. filmmakers will make their first movie a horror movie because they sell themselves. People aren't going to see a Shakespeare play. They're going to see the play with the disemboweling and, oh, I heard it has this. Yeah. Right. And then once you establish a name, you can do what you want because they're yeah. coming to see you know. Yeah, yeah. Bill's next play. And so you can yeah. take those things that were like in the Rose scenes and make those into what you do. Right. Because that's really what you want to do. But, oh, yeah, I could think of it. 
director, but I don't know if we can mention the movie. So I haven't seen it actually. Then you can mention it. Okay. I was thinking PT Anderson with Boogie Nights versus what he would do later on in his career. Yeah. That's a, that's a good example. Cause that so, movie's about the pornography industry and has elements that will sell themselves. But later stuff has nothing to do with that. Mm-hmm. So Yeah. So I think that they're fine. You think about it in his career. If these were really written in the early 1590s, mid 1590s, he was only in his late twenties, early thirties when he wrote these. And mm-hmm. so, I mean, this is a young man making a way for himself. Well, what about Richard the Third? How would you rank that in the Pantheon? Middling for sure. I don't think it's up there with the best, but it's definitely stood the test of time more than the Henry the Sixth plays have, largely because of Richard the Third's character. He's one of the great Shakespeare villains. He if you were even you know, if you were to rank the Shakespeare villains, he'd be right up there with Iago and those sorts of guys. Lady Macbeth. Yep. Yep. That's <laughs> <laughs> where I'd put it. He get like yeah, he gets some of those monologues which are good, pretty representative. Best of Shakespeare. The best of Shakespeare, yeah. I would say of his villains, he's he has a he has top five Shakespeare villains. He's also maybe top maybe not quite as nuanced as no, and the, there are problems. The really I mean, there, great there are things villains. to trouble you, like the fact that, and they really play it up in the end of Henry the Sixth, where it's because of his deformity that he's going to let himself speak. Then, like he's going to match his soul to his body, mm-hmm. right? So he's felt the outcast, and so now he's going to just play and be the the outcast mm-hmm. and be the villain. And well, that's a good example of what I was talking about in terms of my cinematic expectations, like and, and my psycho, my modern psychological expectations. Shakespeare doesn't feel the need to go any deeper than that with Richard the third. It's like, yeah, I decided to be a bad guy because yeah. I was deformed and I can't really get girls. So what else am I going to do, but destroy everything in my path, kill everyone and assume absolute power. Tony Soprano, Don Draper, these guys are always a little bit more nuanced than that. That's what I kind of am used to. Yeah. But Richard the third, he didn't need anything besides that. Yeah, there's not a whole lot of depth to his character, but he still gets some good writing. He does get some good writing. Yeah. I mean, nowadays people make a whole lot of, the, if, if people are going to be bothered by Shakespeare, it's going to be because, you know, well, because Richard III, is it because Richard III's deformed that he's bad? Like, does his physical deformity make him into a monster? Mm-hmm. Right. And so the way that we've advanced well beyond that today in our culture, right, where physical deformity doesn't necessarily make you a monster. People point to that as being problematic because that just participates in the whole carnival mm. um, freak show sort of mentality. I mean, it's just something to point out. That's what people go with that, with this play. Well, there you go. Yeah. Do with that what you will. <laughs> Do with that what you will. I mean, you can see, sure. Yeah. That can lead to some problematic things if you decide for some reason to take his portrayal of Richard III and think that he's saying that everybody with a withered arm and a hunchback is therefore a monster. Yep. I don't think that's what Shakespeare was saying. I think that Shakespeare was saying that Richard III was that sort of man where bitterness was already there and anger was already there because of his past and he chose to be that man. Well, Hall Crown attempts to solve the problem by having him observe a bunch of violent things happen to his family and yeah. they, they try and kind of give him a reason, but I don't think Shakespeare cares that much about that sort of thing. No. Richard III was just a bad dude. And I think it's simplistic to think that Shakespeare was then suggesting that everybody who has a physical deformity is a monster. Nowadays, we're very sensitive about identity politics. And so anything like that can cause a, a brouhaha. <laughs> a brouhaha. Uh, well, anything else you guys want to say about these plays? I mean, I don't know that there's that much. The language is good. Yeah. That. 
He could write. He could write. He knew how to put that limited vocabulary into good use. Yeah. For a guy with a limited <laughs> vocabulary, he really made a lot, did a lot with what he had. I'd like to see what he would have done had he had a bigger vocabulary. Yeah. He would have been John Mar- Marston, apparently. Yeah. Do you guys think it's immoral to watch plays about bad people doing bad things? Uh, there's a Christian podcast. I mean, there's not really a hero in Richard III. You're just following this. What's that place that you sometimes get questions? Schmoop.com. Yeah, schmoop.com. yeah, I think you should write questions for schmoop.com. Well, Jake, <laughs> Christian schmoop. That's a little thing <laughs> called deflection, my friend. <laughs> I don't know if you're my psychological insight. Reformed schmoop. Reformedschmoop.com. Yeah, we'll start reformedschmoop.com. I mean, these are the sorts of questions people would actually ask, aren't they? These are the kinds of questions that the people want to know. What does the bookening say? Oh, is it man. bad to watch plays that are just about bad people doing bad things? I did go declare war on my cousins after watching this. Did you? Yeah. So maybe. Huh. I don't know. Bible's got some stories about some bad people doing bad things. Yeah. You make a fair point. I mean, probably we should cut out that whole Ahab and Jezebel stuff. Probably. I would say so. That's pretty bad. A lot of the stuff that happens with David is pretty bad. It'd be nice not to have that. Yeah. It's not like there's anything that we can learn from that anyway, because we're not bad. No. That really is the thing, is that as people that are not evil and don't have those kinds of inclinations... What is there for us, really, in reading about a bad, horrible villain, monstrous psychopath like Richard III? Yeah. Yeah. And of course, that's not to go the route where you say, well, the only way we, we watch things like this so that we can learn about the real depravity of man. Right? You don't <laughs> want to go that extreme either. No. So, which means that, yeah, there are certain things that do that sort of thing that you shouldn't watch. Well, the difference between this and Game of Thrones or something like that is what something like Game of Thrones wants to say is, let's do a thought experiment. What if you were the worst possible version of yourself? And then Game of Thrones wants to say, well, actually, you could kind of get ahead. That'd be kind of cool. What Shakespeare wants to say is, well, yeah, you could get ahead for a while, but then- It's going to catch up to you. It's going to catch up to you. Buckingham's going to abandon you. You're going to dream about a ghost, a bunch of ghosts, and they're going to tell you to despair and die. And then you're going to despair and die. And nobody's going to give you a horse. And I think you should be careful. Like, so with the hollow crown- I would draw a distinction between what it's doing versus what Shakespeare was doing. So there is Game of Thrones elements to the way they chose to tell the story. I do think some of it was over the top. Well, what's inherent in the way that they approach the story that I don't think is inherent in the way Shakespeare approaches the story is war is bad. At the end of the day, it doesn't really matter what side you're on. It's all kind of garbage, which there's some of that in Shakespeare, but Shakespeare means for us to rally behind Henry V and yeah. they feel a lot queasier about that mm-hmm. than I think Shakespeare did yeah. ultimately, which is why one of the reasons why they amp up all the violence and make all these characters seem even nastier than they, like Shakespeare didn't actually need blood because these people could inflict emotional wounds on each other yeah. when they called each other things like rooting abortive hogs. Like, yeah. You don't really need to stab someone if you're going to call them a rooting abortive hog. No, it's a stab enough. It's, a, it's enough of a stab. Yeah. It's a stab enough. <laughs> a stab enough. The Brandon Chastain story. All right, guys. Speaking of stabbing, you know who I would never want to stab is any of our patrons because oh, then man. we would be making less money. And they seem like wonderful people. Depends and on how fatally you stab them. I really don't want to even give them a flesh wound. Oh. I'm glad we're having this conversation. 
<laughs> not my best transition. People give to the booking and we will not want to stab you. No, you are like the opposite of a person that we might want to stab. We don't really want to stab anyone, but. That's what Richard would have said. That's what Richard, yeah. Yeah, Nathan. I can smile and talk to the patrons. Guys, let's shout them out. Why don't. Brandon, you say any one word that occurs to you that's not Dracula or Frankenstein. And Jake, you say any one word that occurs to you that's not Dracula or Frankenstein. Mm. After I say the patrons' names. Robert and Rhonda the Lovebirds. Huh. It's important to note that Jake and Brandon both have a two-word vocabulary. Frankfurter. Vampire. I feel like you guys are obeying the letter of the law, but (laughs) (laughs) kind of skirting the spirit here. The Artful Anthony Dodger. Vampire. Frankfurter. <laughs> Little Anthony's Cigar Store. Vampire. Frankfurter. I'm so mad right now. <laughs> the Immortal Chelsea E. Vampire. Frankfurter. Jimmy Beam and Little Annie Oakley. Vampire. Frankfurter. Lily of the Valley. Vampire. Frankfurter. Andrew Nestor of the Lovebirds. Vampire. Frankfurter. The Keith Master. Vampire. All right, let's new plan. <laughs> <laughs> Brandon, you're not allowed to say Dracula or Vampire. Jake, you're not allowed to say Frankenstein or Frankfurter or anything that starts with Frank. Okay. <laughs> Andrew and Esther, the lovebirds. Count. Monster. <laughs> <laughs> Count monster. <laughs> the Keith Master. Count. Monster. David's Mighty Men Trucking. Count. Monster. You see what I have to put up with, folks. All I want to do is a straight, serious literature podcast. And these guys. John and Jill and Little Baby Max. Count. Monster. Jay and Katie, who are cold and love cheese and also C.S. Lewis, including until we have faces. Count. Fairy Princess of Wonder and Happiness, Mother Beth. Monster. Count. Consul Prime Adam. Monster. Count. Jeremy the Dark Lord of Death. Monster. Count. Nathan, not me. Monster. Count. Maya! Maya! Ryan the Red Avenger and Judith of the Ladies of Justice. Count. Monster. Hey guys, how would you be a part of this list, by the way? Oh, you'd give to patreon.com forward slash the booking. At least the $10 amount. Uh, Danny the Dude. Count. Monster. DJ Sammy G. Count. Monster. Benny and Dana Tiberius. Monster. Count. Eric and Catherine from Beyond Window Breaks. Monster. Get a third plan. Okay. Brennan, yeah. you're not allowed to say the two other words that we mentioned or the word count. Uh-huh. And Jake, you can't say monster. Okay. All right. I feel like this will turn the tables on Jake and Brandon. And now they'll do something more in the spirit of what I'm asking. Let's find out, shall we? DJ Sammy G. Scientist. Van Helsing's enemy. Benny and Dan Tiberius. Mad Scientist. Enemy. <laughs> Eric and Catherine from Yon Window Breaks. Mad Scientist. Enemy. <laughs> Professor and Lady X. Mad Van Scientist. Enemy. Lavender's Green Dylan Dylan. Van Helsing's Enemy. Mad Scientist. Noah Constrictor. Van Helsing's Mad Enemy. Scientist. Marichip. Mad Van Scientist. Enemy. The Fair and Fragrant Maiden Chloe. Mad Scientist. Anything who's cold and light, hates life, liberty, and the pursuit of cheese. Van Helsing's Mad Enemy. Mad Scientist. All right, let's, let's do this. <laughs> Here's an idea. Brennan, I don't <laughs> want you to say anything... Any word that makes me think of Dracula. And Jake, I don't want you to say any th- word that makes me think of Frankenstein. All right, folks. I feel like we have solved this problem, and I feel pretty good about it. Hmm. Marichip. Chocolate cereal. Lightning. <sighs> <laughs> the fair and fragrant maiden Chloe. Lightning. Chocolate cereal. <laughs> Anthony, who is cold and hates life, liberty, and the pursuit of cheese. Chocolate Lightning. Cereal. Jeff to Jeffrey, the Texas Ranger. Lightning. Rachel. Rachel. 
Leopard Tank Chocolate Thomas, cereal. Lightning, Lightning. Uh, Midnight Ninja Ellen, Lightning, Queen Kingetta, Lightning, Return of the Jedediah, Jave Rack and Ruin, Lightning, Timothy the Red Red Dawn, American Lightning. Kate, the Camp Champ Kings, who are warm and love bees, Lightning, Maddie, 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 Sweet Jamie Sunshine, Lightning, Tyler the Keeper of Eternal Darkness, Laura the Keeper of Eternal Light, Lightning, Cold Steel Cody, Lightning, Jacqueline the Librarian Barbarian, Lightning, John Bombadillo Bomb Diggity and Captain Neil, his mate, Lightning, Captain, er, Captain, Saxophone Alex, Lightning, Chocolate Cereal, Chocolate Cereal. Chocolate cereal. Chocolate cereal. <laughs> Eli, the Scarlet Pilgrim. Lightning. Chocolate cereal. I'm hungry. Hey, everybody. Thanks for listening. Book and Name produced by me, executive produced by Jake, performed by me, Jake, and Brandon. And go to patreon.com forward slash the booking and sign up to support us for a low amount. Uh, go to your podcast listening device and write a little five-star review. That would be a big help. Tell people about the show. Isolate a favorite episode, email it to someone today, or text it to somebody, or write a letter. Stick it in the mail. Do it. Do it. 